Uncommon is a production by Neural, a unique digital agency. Neural specializes in content production in the areas that matter most to your content strategy across podcast production, video production, and social media. If you want to increase your conversion or grow your brand trust, head to neural.com to request a callback. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com. My name is Jordan Michaelides and I'm the host of Uncommon, a show that asks the why on business, media, current affairs, and sport. If you like this episode, do leave us a written review on your podcast app, particularly if you're on Apple Podcasts, as it does help the feed work out. If you like this sort of content, find all previous guests, just head to neural.com slash uncommon. For the full video, you can search Uncommon Show on YouTube. For social, you can keep up to date with behind the scenes at uncommon underscore show on Instagram. With all that being said, let's get into the episode. My guest this week, Simon Griffiths, CEO and co-founder of Who Gives a Crap. How's lockdown been going for you? <laughs> yeah, we're, I mean, we're, we've been really lucky. Um, we live an hour south of Melbourne in, in Shoreham on the Mornington Peninsula. So, oh, really? Um, yeah, you know, have a, have a little bit more space. Uh, the nearest shops are 10 kilometers away. Um, our, our son was able to keep going to kindergarten. So, and that's 10 kilometers away. So we've sort of felt really, um, yeah, very fortunate to not be in the city for this, this second part. Um, and, and you, the, this would probably make some people really unha- unhappy, but I surf a lot and the waves have been totally empty, which has been amazing. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine you'd have not too many, uh, City slickers down there, Shoreham. Uh, okay, so you near Cape Shank and Merrick's. Yeah, yeah, pretty spot. close to Flinders, and yeah. Is yeah. that like a a family spot? Um, is that where your family grew up? Are, are you normally in the city? Uh, no, we we've lived down here for four years. Um, okay. So we used to live in the city um, for you know I think I was in Melbourne for fifteen years ish before that. Yeah, um, maybe a bit longer, and then yeah we we kind of bought a place um, on a whim and took about a year to figure out that we actually didn't want to live in the city anymore. And so we kind of <laughs> moved down full time and uh, I've really enjoyed it. And I should say we're normally, because we have an American team and it's quite hard to, um, you know, with team, you really want to spend time with people face to face. So we normally spend a few months in LA each year working with the team over there. Um, so it was a bit of an interesting thing moving out of the city, but I think we felt like we'd both spent enough time kind of living the city life to to step away from it. But we get all of the stuff that you miss of city life when we're in LA, which is amazing. So, you know, takeaway food and kind of yeah. all that stuff that's a bit harder to get down here. We kind of get that stuff um, for, you know, usually for three months of the year and, and then are happy to sort of feel like we're living in the bush the rest of the time. Does And who gives a crap has an office in the city? Yeah. Sort of. Or so did. we... Yeah, we <laughs> did. Um, we have a co-working space. So we have co-working spaces in LA, Melbourne, and nowhere else at the moment, but we have team members in yeah, Melbourne, LA, Manila, um, China, and then we've got one person island. And the idea is that, you know, we actually started as a fully distributed team. And then as we've got a bit a bit older, a bit more mature, we've realized, you know, face-to-face is a very powerful thing and we want mm. to bring people together to, to spend that time together. But we also, um, you know, wanted people to be able to set their own kind of decisions around how much time they spend in the office because I don't think office work is 
the best solution for everyone. And it certainly isn't for me. Yeah. So our, our Melbourne team said, Hey, we'll, we'll come in one day a week. Our LA team said, we're a bit more collaborative because we're marketing and creative. So we kind of need to spend more time sitting around the same laptop. Um, so we'll come in three days a week. And then the Manila team said, traffic here sucks. We'll get together once a month on a weekend so we don't have to deal with the traffic. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really interesting during COVID. And you guys had this time to check this out because I've read uh, Rework. Yep. And what was the other one that DHH and his co-founder wrote? Oh, it's going to bug me now. Something like work doesn't need to suck or something. I forget. So, something like that. DHH book, but um, it it was about, so it's a rework and remote. Oh, remote. Office yep. not required. That was yep. the first one. We've had this recently because I, I guess since the start of the year, the agency has sort of really began and then COVID happened. It, it came to May and... So we were all out of this lockdown in Melbourne in May. And I was like, okay, maybe we should get an office because we need a studio space for doing these interviews normally. Like as you can see behind we, behind me, we normally do these interviews. It's actually in our apartment in East Melbourne. And yeah. we do these interviews here. And, you know, it was three weeks. We were locked back down again. And I said to my partner and co-founder, I was like, do you know what? Like let's just hire people. Like I've read so many of these books and love that way of operating that I genuinely consider what we're going to do come Jan, Feb, when things are somewhat normal again. Like I know I don't want to live in the city anymore. Yep. <laughs> but I know that I need a studio and it has to be central to do these interviews because a lot yeah. of the, the time you might have like a traveling artist or star who when things are back to normal would be, you know, staying around South Bank, Richmond, CBD, et cetera. And you need to be in a place that's easy for them to get to. Yeah, totally. Um, so it's really, really tough as to how we're going to work that out. We're thinking studio space, but people don't have to come into the office, like St Kilda Road or something like that. Probably move a little bit further out. Uh, Lauren's parents, my partner, she actually li- they actually live in... Um, they're not far from you. They stayed down at Flinders and Merrick's for a little bit while the house is being built, but they, they're now at, um, do you know the Martha Cove at Safety Beach? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're down on the marina there. Yeah, so awesome. they, they sold their house in the city and then moved down. And it's been really interesting to see how many friends at our age now, it's sort of that 30 years of age, they're having kids and a lot of people moving down to the peninsula. Yeah, it's um, it's a different, it's quite an amazing place to grow up you know there's a lot of um it's a pretty pretty enjoyable lifestyle and and you know the kids can kind of run outside and you're not kind of freaking out about jumping on the road and stuff like that which is (laughs) which is good um but um yeah i think if if we've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about what you're thinking about if we were smaller and when we when we first started what worked well was actually having um kind of an apartment which had an, an office in the ground floor of it. And uh-huh. that way, um, you know, you could, that was where we started and I lived above it. But if we, um, we kind of got too big and so so we no longer could kind of fit inside that, that space. But yeah. if we had started a little bit later, then we could have lived down here and been able to, you know, keep a, an apartment in the city above where we worked. And so you've got kind of your studio space there, and but also a bed to kind of crash in when you need it. Of course, um, yeah. So that would be awesome. We've thought about that, you know, what if we did that in LA? What if we rented a house 
and use that house as our office. But I think at a certain point you reach a scale where there's an expectation from your team that you're sort of a bit more professional than that. You're trying to attract <laughs> like top talent from Netflix and you're like, yeah, come and work in our share house. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not quite the, you know, the way that you do things. <laughs> what's the, what's the head count now? Um, we're at 93 globally at the moment. Okay. 93. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit hard when you get to that size, um, yeah. doing that sort of thing, but, but it is nice when you're smaller, you have this sort of fluid team that is so open to everything and it sort of makes it a lot easier to do it. I just remember saying to our client director and I was saying, Oh man, we really need an office. And he's like, why? Like, it's only you who really needs that. We don't, we don't need that. Yeah. Um, but it's more the fact that like, I'm, I'm just itching to get away from living in the city. I'm just sick of the noise more than yeah. anything. Um, well, yeah, it's been, yeah, we felt very privileged to be down here. It's been a real, um, you know, very lucky through a pretty tough time in Victoria. Have you been to Foxy's much over the years? Foxy's <laughs> Hangout? Yeah, a little bit. Um, we have Foxy's, there's a few that, that sort of a few wineries that get quite busy um, Foxy's being one of them. So depending on sort of the day, we have some other, you know, some less quiet, so more quiet spots like Panton, which we quite like. Ah, yeah. That hasn't been open this year. So yeah. next time you're down, we'd recommend checking that out. It's a nice spot. Yeah, there's a few amazing spots down there. I just don't want to mention them. I don't, I don't <laughs> want people to go and ruin them because they're already busy enough. Foxy's has been, uh, Foxy's is really tough, particularly with these, um, you know, the, the updates on seating, it's going to be really interesting to see whether you can even get yeah. in there or not because yeah. they still don't do bookings. So yeah, that's going to be fun. Um, you mentioned before about Shoreham being a nice place to grow up. Where did you actually grow up? Yeah, I grew up in, in so my whole family's British and we moved yeah. to Western Australia when I was four. Um, and so I grew up um, in, in the 80s in what was quite a sort of like hippie kind of beachy suburb called Swanbourne. Oh, yeah pre-mining boom and I think post-mining boom it's no longer a kind of hippie <laughs> hippie surface suburb it's kind of <laughs> changed a lot but um yeah that meant that we were you know a 10 minute walk from the beach so I kind of grew up doing surf lifesaving and boogie boarding and all that sort of stuff and I don't think I ever realized that living in Melbourne but I actually you know like there's something about the beach that I'm really drawn to and and mm. you know being able to see the horizon and kind of jump in the water is a kind of an important part of personal well-being for me i think yeah um so yeah we've sort of been drawn to to more coastal places it's funny you mentioned that i i had that same realization the last two years what do you think it was for you that made you realize that was it just being and living in the city and then one day you went down to a coastal area and you're like holy shit i have really missed this thing yeah, I think um, we, we were quite lucky that one of our very good friends had a, a sort of house that had been in their family for a long time in Shoreham. And that's, so we started spending a bunch of time at, at their house um, on weekends. And and that was, I think, kind of the realization for us. And, and he, you know, he, he actually sent us the real estate listing when it came up. So we've got him to thank for, for that shift in our life. Um, yeah, wow. you know, five or so years ago. Yeah, I think... Um... I think it was like two years ago, I had a really bad hay fever because uh, like we live next to the gardens and I was like, oh, man, why, why do I get such bad hay, hay fever now? And then we went to the, the beach. I think it was just even just a walk on Albert Park Beach and I was like, wow, that salt air, even yeah. though it's still like the inner city Bay Area was enough to sort of alleviate the itchy nose and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, holy shit, like 
I really do miss growing up around this as a kid. Yeah. There's something about it, the salty yeah, air or think, something like that. I think that's it. Like it's for me, for me personally, I think it's from childhood. You know, it's like, it was such a big part of my childhood, you know, spending every weekend at the beach. And that was where you'd meet friends kind of when we were, you know, when everyone was old enough to drive, it'd be like, let's meet at the beach. And that's kind of how you kind of catch up before figuring out what you're going to do next. So yeah. it was just kind of a part of life, I guess. Yeah. What, what did you think you were going to be? when you were growing up? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I think when I um, was yeah, younger, I used to say, I want to be a businessman. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think I ever really knew what that meant. Um, that's funny. So I kind of liked, yeah, I don't know. I liked the the idea of like creating things and, and having like a, some sort of sale component, you know, tied to, to what you're doing. Um, but it took me a long time to figure out what I actually really wanted to do. <laughs> was that because your family had run businesses when you were a kid? Had, had there been someone that you sort of looked up to? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it was. Um, and I remember like even doing an assignment on it when I was at school and um, the person that I interviewed was our um, window cleaner who like ran his own, you know, his own window cleaning business. Um, and so uh, I thought that was kind of cool and was, you know, intrigued by like a, a different career path. Um, and so I think he cleaned a bunch of windows and then plowed all of his money into real estate. And so he sort of became like a, a real estate mogul through his, his window cleaning, which was pretty, wow. pretty interesting. Um, he, would so, have he would have loved you asking the yeah. interview. <laughs> No, it was good. It was really, it was really interesting. So, um, I kind of, yeah, I think, you know, being a businessman in inverted commas, I think, um, growing up in the eighties and the nineties, like that was, that was generally seen as a pretty sleazy kind of, it was, you know, yeah. not a, not a great, you know, great thing to be aspiring for. And so there was part of it that was, um, wasn't right. And it took me, you know, many years to figure out that what I really cared about was entrepreneurship, but, but with a, you know, a profit for purpose bent. So kind of how you shift incentives to, um, create product offerings and customer experiences that are better than what you can get elsewhere by embedding more than just, just, you know, pure physical product into, into the experience. Yeah. I mean, that was really interesting reading about, um, you know, you went to Melbourne Uni, Bachelor of Commerce, Electrical Engineering. It seems like you did a double degree back when they offered double degrees. Now it's yep. all the Melbourne. It's all the Melbourne model. Yeah, uh, where you have to do your bloody undergrad and then you essentially got to do. I would have hated that. I couldn't have yeah, done my it. Bro- yeah, my brother did that and he, he hates it. Um, <laughs> I think you had the the opportunity to jump to that McKinsey job, and then I think from memory you quit on the first day or something oh, I, I, of that yeah. like that. I never started, um, started. I kind of, yeah, that getting, you know, working hard towards getting the job offer and then getting it was enough for me to realize that it, it wasn't quite right for me. What, what, um, what was that though? Like in hindsight, was there a particular moment where you thought like, oh, cause I, I had that about a year. No, I did an internship in summer cause I did accounting banking finance classic, like WOG family. Like you gotta be a profession. Yep. Um, and you know, you do this thing and then I'm like, oh, okay, so I'll become a CA, I guess. Yep. <laughs> and uh, I did like, you know, a month in December, a month in Jan. And I was like, I'm never doing this again in my life. Like this is just <laughs> not going to happen at all. So was it something like that at all? That yeah. You 
It was something like that. I think um, I worked briefly as an engineer, briefly as a banker and was just like, this sucks. Like I'm wearing, you know, like these weird clothes, like I have to wear a shirt and like suit pants and I'm stuck inside like a temperature controlled space all day. I've got no idea what's going on outside and I'm breathing recycled air. Like I don't, I don't feel good. I like, yeah, feel really uncomfortable and the work that I'm, I'm doing is, is actually like something that I'm not, I don't really care that much about the outcome of it. You know, I can do mm-hmm. it. I've been trained to do it, but I'm not able to really give it, give it my all because it's not something that I actually care that much about. <laughs> yeah. And it was simple as that. Yeah. And so it was, it was yeah. kind of, for me, it was like, I could do this and get paid for it, but is that what I really want to spend my time on? And I sort of realized that, it, it wasn't like I wanted to, to work on stuff that I actually cared about so that I could, you know, unleash everything that I had in me rather than feeling like I was only ever able to get to my 70%. The banking component, was that invest in banking like M&A or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So I worked in M&A and um, I loved, I loved half of my job and I hated the other half of the job. Dude, I, I could, if you're, if you're mentioning the whole suit thing and being stuck in a recycled office an M&A grad does like minimum 14 hour days, it's just, it's the worst. It, yeah, totally. it actually makes me feel depressed and sick thinking about it. Yeah. But the, the funny thing was that I loved, I loved doing the longer days because that was when you were actually working on something cool. <laughs> and so I was really engaged in my work because I was, you know, building out like a model to buy a building, like a huge skyscraper or kind of, you know, working on stuff that was like a pretty interesting kind of learning experience. And so even if I didn't care that much about the skyscraper we were buying, I was learning about how, you know, the inside of a kind of, yeah, a property business operated and, and sort of building that up from scratch. So I found that really interesting, but the stuff that I found was really terrible was when I was not working on, you know, a deal and you're expected to, you're kind of like someone's glorified assistant at that point, yeah. you know, writing, writing slides to potentially go in some sort of research deck in the future. And there's just not, you know, it's just not very engaging. And so, um, I, I didn't really enjoy that part of it, but, but when I was on stuff, it was kind of, you know, I, I got a kick out of that at least. So you did the development aid work while you were at uni. Um, I think you spent some time in Asia and then both Eastern and Southern Africa. Yes. Um, so yeah, the, the story there is kind of, you know, I grew up in, in Perth and then moved to Melbourne to go to uni and um, I was, you know, studying economics and, and engineering. And so as a good economist, I figured out pretty quickly that it was much more cost efficient for me to spend my holidays in Southeast Asia than it was to go back to Western Australia because flights used to cost the same. And obviously the cost of living was, you know, so much lower. And so I'd work really hard all semester to kind of get enough money saved up so that I could not have to work all summer and then live off, you know, like I remember it was like a $50 a day budget maximum. And that was enough to kind of get you through, you know, all of the summer months and then, and then back coming to university again. And so I do a little bit of travel, a little bit of volunteer work and kind of, you know, get to kind of understand different parts of the world. So originally in Southeast Asia and then further afield over the years. What was the, what was the pull to volunteer work? Was it as simple as like you wanted to live cheaply and you're like, okay, I'll try this thing. You do some work for a day and you get fed Um, and uh, and it sort of opened your mind to something else or. Yeah. I think, I think it was more like 
you know, it's easy to kind of reflect on it now and understand a bit more about what it was. But for me, it was this interest in social mobility. You know, why, how come if someone's born in this part of the world, they end up having a very different life to someone somewhere else? Um, and then what, what are the levers that you can pull to, to shift that trajectory? Like, how do you, you know, how can you play a role in, in, you know, someone's social mobility being, being on a different trajectory than what it otherwise would have done. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of volunteered in, in, in different roles, trying to like get my head around that, but not realizing it at the time because I was young and kind of, you know, just trying a bunch of stuff to see what made sense. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting to see how you came into this. I feel like, or it sounds, it sort of sounds like you were, like with, with every passion or hobby that people have is you had been consuming this information about what was happening in this space. Because when you look at, you know, what really led to what you did with who gives a crap, or at least should been to start, you know, there was this thing, there was a note on one interview where you noticed that the go to market of these organizations was like 30% of their budget was spent roughly on just raising funds. So they'd raise money to then spend 30% of that raised money to raise more money, which yeah. wasn't, it's not a really scalable go to market. And it sort of seems like there was this early shift happening when you were launching Shabin, researching, learning more about this stuff that the way to really, and this sort of comes in hand with like effective altruism being like a really popular movement back then as well. This is sort of when yeah. I first found out about it and everything was going from being marketing focused to product focused, you yeah. know, like you raise money from product as opposed to raising it from raising, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. That's a um, great, great observation. Do, do you think that was sort of like the perfect amalgam of what was happening then in the industry? Yeah. I think that, and then at the same time, you know, the GFC hit, so oh, really? yeah. there was this kind of, um, GFC was this really pivotal kind of moment where I think a lot of people realized that the way that we were going about capitalism wasn't quite right. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was like, hang on, <laughs> like we just created a, you know, a global economic meltdown because we over, <laughs> over, over-engineered some financial instruments. Like that's not cool. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was this realization of, Hey, like how do we, what other options are there out there to use capitalism for something that's more positive? And a lot of people have been thinking about that for a long time, but I think the GFC got, you know, more people who probably weren't thinking about it before starting to think about it. And so that was kind of another catalyst that, that happened. Yeah. I remember there was this talk. Um, I always forget this guy's name. He's Scottish. Um, there's Peter Singer, who's the most well-known, uh, I guess, lecturer on this topic, but there's a guy who's at Oxford, Scottish, lecturer um and he will mccaskill that's it have you ever heard of will mccaskill no i have to check it out dude this guy is amazing um pretty sure he's younger than i oh know he's 87 okay so he's a few, years, <laughs> a few years older than i am so three years older um i thought for some reason he just looks like he's got a baby face yeah. and this guy to me is just fascinating like he he's done a few things so the first thing is with effective altruism, which I found interesting is he was like, instead of getting in non-for-profit land, most people who are good at a thing should do that career and work out how much the least amount they can live on and donate the rest to the most effective organizations. And he built a tool 
for people to work that out. And it was really interesting because, you know, that was a time where the Clinton foundation, it would show like the breakdowns of the percentages spent on actual things. So, you know, the Clinton foundation would spend like 50% of their money on admin. And then you get to like the Gates foundation and like only 10% would be spent on admin or you get to that mosquito foundation based in Africa. I think it is primarily. And it was like the most effective uh, charity in the world. Yeah. So that was like the first stage of it. And then we got the second stage, which is companies like yours and thank you group, which was like actually social enterprise is like really what you should start thinking about. If you're good at business, you should make a business that then funds XYZ project or niche or whatever it may be at the time. Yeah. So, so I'm, I, I hadn't, um, his name didn't ring a bell, but definitely familiar with kind of the, the work. And I remember yeah. that. Um, yeah, you're kind of right. Like that was a big, there was a big sort of shift in thinking around that time Huge. around, you know, how do you, how, how do you become more effective with your giving? Um, and yeah, our, our philosophy was, you know, the philanthropy market is good and it should exist and it, it does, it does a good job of what it's doing now, but it's never going to be easily scalable because to, to double the size of the philanthropy market, you have to get everyone to give twice as much mm. every year. And that's not possible. So if we're trying to get more money flowing into you know the organizations that need it, instead of just relying on the philanthropy market, let's also tap into the trillions of dollars that are changing hands in the economy. So we're now, you know, kind of similar to what you talked about now asking people to, to do what they're good at, to build a great business, knowing that that business is, is giving back. And, and if it's successful, it will result in some, you know, really significant impact. So that's kind of how we've gone about it. Yeah. Well, it blew blew my mind because I was like, Holy shit, this could really change because the thing that opened my mind up to philanthropy and and being passionate about certain causes was, well, experiences I'd had in life, but also when Bill Gates convinced Warren Buffett to donate like 90% of his um, wealth. And because I'm a big Buffett fan, I was like, holy shit, maybe this is like the thing, you know, because I have this idea around being this entrepreneur and bidding all this money, but like, what do you do with it? And uh, the first thing that came to my mind when I heard of social enterprise was the fact that I want to do something in diabetes and mental health. One, because my brother's type one diabetic and because I've had a lot of mental health issues. But the diabetes one is particularly interesting because the entire industry is an absolute duopoly. Um, That makes insane margins on people who need this product, which could be solved if there was just that little bit more research for another decade or so. And um, like, that's the thing that I'm thinking about long-term is like, what would a company look like if, if you could sell these products, insulin, the strips, everything to diabetics, but they know that they're buying it from a company that is looking for the cure for them because the Mm. pharmaceutical companies aren't that Mm. just absolutely blew my mind. I remember speaking to my brother about it and he was like, Whoa, this, this is gonna this is gonna change how how a lot of these causes can be solved. Yeah, and I think if you kind of play that out, you know, that's one. You know, who gives a crap? Shabin, it's one business model in one category. You know, you're talking about a, a different or a similar business model in a different category. But but imagine if every business had one product that was like that. 
And yeah. that's sort of, you know, if we can create that sort of societal shift, then the impact from that's just massive. I heard someone that we really like recently talk about, you know, that there's three ways that you can create large scale change. The first is to be a billionaire, but there's, you know, not many of those and they give away all their money to, and it's not just a billionaire. It's like a, a Bill Gates level billionaire who, who can fund, you know, really huge change across, you know, continents, places like India with sanitation. Um, so you can have massive, massive impact there. The second way is to, to be in government, but there's only a very small number of people that, that can really kind of have the influence there. And then it also comes with the challenge of politics. Yeah. And the third way is to, to get a very large number of people to make a very small difference that when you add it up at scale creates a massive amount of impact. Um, and if you can do that third way successfully, it's not just about the, the consumers that you can reach. It's also about creating whiplash in a category from the change that, that you unleash that mm. forces everyone else to adjust in order to, to keep up with this new way of doing things. Well, that's the first thing I was thinking about when I had like topics, you know, after the transformation of social enterprise into the non-for-profit industry was around the competitive advantage. Like that was the most intriguing element to me. Um, you think about enterprises like thank you group who gives a crap is I, I, I just assume, I don't know if this is the case, but you can be incredibly competitive on margin. Like, yes, you are going for profit to use that profit towards certain tasks, but you can also challenge the industry because you're not, as as obsessed maybe with margin as they may be or have similar targets that they may have you may be able to outlast them in in the industry for a longer period of time because you know you're talking about organizations that make decisions on a quarterly basis if who gives a crap has a 3 year plan to dominate market share and eventually slowly increase their price which then increase profits to go towards these projects then you could assume that you could push out these other players in the market. I know that's a really probably naive way of looking at it, but how do you think about that? Um, I mean, we, we think about it less from like edging someone out and increasing prices and more about, um, you know, doing something at scale. So, you know, with who gives a crap in particular, it's a low volume product, but sorry, a low margin product. So you have to have high volume in order for it to, to really work. And we've been able to kind of build um, a business that, you know, fulfills that goal. But margin is actually really important because if you're not, if you're not creating enough margin, then your donation is going to, is going to suffer. And so every point of margin that you lose ultimately has, you know, a significant negative impact on what your donation will look like at the end of the year. So you still have to be really commercial. I think, I think what we saw was that, um, you know, the competitive advantage can be on things other than just price, which plays into margin. It can be around, and other than just the physical product, it can be around the customer experience. And so, mm. you know, impact is obviously a big part of our customer experience and how we tell that story. And that's both social and environmental. But then there's also packaging, free delivery, great customer service, you know, limited editions that we run throughout the year. You could think of our emails as part of our kind of, you know, customer experience and trying to deliver moments of delight into people's inbox once a month. And so if we can, if we can build enough of those other, you know, blades to, to change the customer experience in a way that's meaningful, then we significantly differentiate ourselves from all of the other products that are in the market. And that's, that's kind of the, the game that we've played. 
And sometimes we'll take a hit on margin to do that. Other times, you know, we'll leverage our competitive advantage to give us a margin benefit. So delivering to someone's door means that we're not selling through supermarkets. And so we don't lose margin to supermarkets in the same way that another company would. Yeah. And we can reinvest that into, you know, building out a more expensive kind of cost of goods with, you know, a higher quality product or packaging or whatever that looks like. Yeah. I was thinking about that during the, um, the great toilet, um, paper debacle of 2020 is, uh, well, it's interesting that who gives a crap doesn't have like, cause you know, you, you got a bunch of cafes, um, different people's houses and they've got who gives a crap and you're like, how do I get this stuff? Okay. You go on the website. So you purposely don't go into supermarkets or at least the two major supermarkets. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't yet. It's not to say that we wouldn't. I think the, um, the philosophy for, for us has been, you know, supermarkets are a great way of reaching a large number of people, but they're a terrible way of building a new business because the success or failure of your business um, is determined by, you know, the buyer of the supermarket's decision on what price they want to sell you at, whether they, you know, want to keep you in range or not keep you in range. And that can change from, from, you know, one quarter to the next, everything can be great. And then all of a sudden you get deranged and, and you're gone. And so there's a lot of leverage over, over you because they completely control the fate of your business. And so yeah. for us, we said, you know, ultimately we want to be where the customer wants to buy us. And for some customers that will be in supermarkets, but, the online sales channel is amazing because for a lot of customers, they prefer to have this big bulky item delivered to their door instead of having to lug it home from the supermarket. And we can build up a, you know, a solid business that then enables us to go and have conversations with the supermarkets without it being make or break. So, you know, when we do engage, it's, it's no longer a, we need to, we need to win this. Otherwise we're, we're never going to be successful. It's a, this is an extra channel that we can sell into on top of what we already do. So the idea of social enterprise in its early beginnings, you could probably argue for you at least, began with Shabin. I think I mentioned off air. Uh, I remember going to Shabin quite a lot, um, yep. sort of tw- 2012, 13. I think you said that just opened then. Yeah. Um, and it was really like a bit of a stalwart in the bar scene for a while. Like it was a good bar. Like it wasn't just, you know, it goes back to your your point about, building a great product. Yep. Um, it was a good bar in and of itself. It's just that it had this added benefit. If, if you bought this stuff, it would go to people. Um, and I remember even like the selection experience of like, oh, who do I want this thing to go to? Like it actually weighed on you a bit. Like I didn't okay, actually make, <laughs> I didn't actually make my, you know, like if I bought a beer, I'd be like, oh, I actually get to choose where this goes. Sort of like when sometimes you go to grilled and they have like the cap. Yeah. And yeah. you get to choose the story of, of where it goes. Um, why why did you choose a bar or hospitality or alcohol as the first category? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. So, so the Shabin concept, if people weren't familiar with it, was a, a nonprofit bar and band room. And we sold different beers and wines from all over the developing world. And the profits, 100% of the profits would, would be donated back to organizations in each drinks country of origin. Um, and so, yeah, by choosing, you know, we, we did the donations based on the sales that we had. So if most of our donations were beer Laos, for example, then that would primarily go to support our partner in, in Laos. And um, yeah, I think the, the, first of all, that idea wasn't mine. That was someone I went to, to university with kind of had the original concept for that Zana. Uh-huh. 
And, um, she said, you run with it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this other thing. Um, but you go for it. Cause it's, you know, too good to let pass. I think what struck me about the idea was it was kind of like that there are ideas that are so simple that you, you sort of go, why hasn't someone done that? Like, it just makes sense. You know, that needs to exist. And I think that when you have that reaction to an idea, that's, you know, you can be guaranteed that a lot of other people will have that same reaction. And it's so simple. They'll want to tell someone else about it because it's an exciting concept where it's, you know, very shareable. Um, and so for me, that's always a great litmus test on, is this a business idea that's worth executing on? Is it so, you know, do people have that reaction that it's so simple that someone should have already created this? And if so, then, you know, it's probably worth kind of giving it a crack. And so mm. Shabin, I think had that because it was blending partly because it was blending, you know, alcohol, which is, um, in a lot of ways, you know, not a good thing but is a part often of, of most people's lives in some way or another, you know, you know alcoholism is very bad, but a lot of us will have a drink at the end of the day to kind of mark the end of the day. And what if that drink could be something that was actually more impactful rather than being something that was you know negatively impactful. Mm. And so that I think was what made the idea kind of interesting to the point where, um, yeah, it had kind of the potential for virality, which is what we saw when we opened. So it seems like, who gives a crap came near the end of Shabin. And my assumption was the reason why Shabin would have shut down is that you were starting on this, who gives a crap journey and, you know, hospitality is a super competitive place. And it's like, is this the best use of my capital? And I've got this great idea with this toilet paper brand. Do I just funnel it all into, uh, into this thing that I'm doing? Cause it's got greater potential to scale. There's also, I think you've mentioned in prior interviews that hospitality is very hard to scale Yep. Um, in comparison to toilet paper. Uh, what, what was your thinking around that at the time? Yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't quite that simple. I think, um, you know, I, I ended up kind of working on both concepts simultaneously. Yeah. And the, the first shipment of Who Gives a Crap actually landed the month after Shabin opened, which was a total disaster. <laughs> like you should never try and launch two businesses at the same time. They were supposed to be many years apart and then the kind of opening dates collided. Um, and um, yeah, Shabin, um, you know, I think the it was quite an interesting and, and sad story around the shutdown or the wrap up of the business. But we, about 18 months in, we actually discovered that the wall of our basement level band room and, and this venue had been a band room for, you know, a decade or more prior, the wall of our basement level band room, which we thought backed on to, to dirt, actually backed on to the sleeping quarters of the Melbourne East police station around the corner from us. Oh my and it God. turned out that um, there were, yeah, police who were trying to sleep, who were upset about, you know, noise coming through the wall. Um, even though they were, you know, their sleeping quarters, I believe actually used to be a nightclub before that. So they, they'd always had kind of this history of, you know, of live music venues being right next to them. And, um, yeah, unfortunately they, they made life really difficult for us. And we, we fought, you know, every, every kind of decision that they kind of laid down and, um, successfully pushed back on most of them. But the one that we couldn't push back on was an 11 PM curfew on live music. And we'd, we'd kind of built up the success of the business based on a 1 PM curfew or, you know, uh, self-restricted 1 PM kind of wrap up of live music. I think we thought we could actually go to three and, um, they, yeah, because of that, we kind of couldn't book the same caliber of bands 
our revenue, our patron numbers dropped as a result, our revenue dropped and we couldn't cut costs fast enough to, to remain profitable. Mm. So after 12 months of running, you know, a bar that was a nonprofit bar. So we're trying to give away all of our profits that was actually losing money because we, you know, couldn't, couldn't, um, find a way to, to build it successfully. I said, the only responsible thing to do is to wrap up the business, which is a kind of a pretty rubbish outcome for everyone that was involved. So really kind of, mm. you know, I think we ultimately we made about $20,000 of donation through that business, which was a lot less than kind of what we'd hoped or expected would be possible. Um, but, you know, most importantly, we learned a lot about running scalable, successful social businesses. And, and hopefully, you know, we've heard from a lot of other people similar to you who that was a sort of somewhat formative experience in how they thought about philanthropy and consumption. And it changed what they might've wanted to do later on in their own lives. So yeah. I think it, it touched more people than than just the team that was working there. Well, I think as well, it would have given you valuable lessons, which I guess you would have carried into who gives a crap as well. Yeah. <laughs> like it would have taught, taught you a lot about, um, you know, a lot of what you do as a, as a chief doer in the initial stages of a business is yeah. basically handling all the risks that come with it. And sometimes some of these risks are just insurmountable and, yeah, and things, I think things you can't handle unless it begins at the start. Hospitality often magnifies those risks as well. <laughs> you know, like you're dealing with cash and it's like, you know, late night, like there's a lot of kind of stuff in there that, that makes the risks more challenging. So, um, I kind of joke that it was sort of like my, you know, my quite expensive MBA because I lost a lot of personal kind of money on it in that last 12 months, but learned so much through that process that, you know, ultimately has helped who gives a crap to be successful. Yeah. Well, it's a lot more valuable to go actually start a business than do an MBA, I find. A lot of people uh, forget about that. Unless, of course, you want to get into investment banking or private equity or something like that. Yeah. Um, so you're running Shabeen. Who gives a crap launch at the same time? I understand that you walked into a bathroom and thought, why not toilet paper? So obviously the idea of a product related social enterprise had been floating around. Yeah. So I think, you know, with Shabin, when the kind of, you know, we, we were in our 20, like our, our kind of mid twenties when we were first started thinking about that idea. Um, so pretty, um, you know, pretty young and, and naive. And so the, it kind of was a pipe dream. And then one day it sort of changed from being a pipe dream to, holy crap, we're actually going to make this, you know, this thing happen. Um, and so for me at that point, I, I, you know, started thinking about amazing, you know, we're going to do this. What a you know cool thing to get off the ground. Is this going to be the thing that, that changes the world? And I realized that, um, it has potential to scale, but it's quite hard to scale bricks and mortar businesses because you need multiple venues and usually they need to be quite close together so you can spend time in each of them. Um, so scaling hospitality businesses nationally and internationally is a, a pretty hard ask unless you follow a franchise model, which just mm. didn't make sense what we were trying to do. And so, um, yeah, I started thinking about, you know, what are the downfalls of this? And it's probably the scalability. What products are there that we could, we could work with that, you know, anyone could access regardless of where they are, regardless of whether they, you know, whether they drink even like what products are there that are out there and, and started thinking about consumer packaged goods. I think it was 2009 and this company called Ethos Water had just sold to, to Starbucks in the US. Uh, um, yeah. 
And that was, for me, that was like, ah, like that, you know, there's something in this, you know, if, if we're seeing these big multinationals starting to engage in this space, I think, I think this is worth kind of exploring a bit further. And I kind of thought about that for, yeah, six months kind of mulling in the back of my mind and then walked into the bathroom, saw a six pack of toilet paper and said, oh my God, sell toilet paper, build toilets and call it, who gives a crap. And, and this is it. That's it. I called three friends and they were all, you know, again, that litmus test is this idea so good that people would tell other people about it. I called three friends and they said, you got to do it. It's awesome. And then the, the third friend was one of the first co-founders. So, so he's, he came on board and said, let me help you figure out how we make this happen. You launched 2012 crowdfunding campaign where you basically sat on a toilet and nearly gave yourself DVT for $50,000 worth of stock, which is a good start. Um, You hit the milestone and then I think three months in, you ran out of stock. No, three weeks in, you ran out of three months worth of stock. Yeah, five days in, we ran out of three months worth of stock. Five five days, really? Yeah. Jesus. Um, (laughs) How likely do you think success would have come if you'd not done that campaign? Um. I don't know. That's a great question. It's one I've, I've never actually thought about. I think the, you know, the, the camp, what made, what made us successful was that we had a thousand customers from the campaign who'd been super excited about what we were doing. You know, they'd paid a slightly higher premium than what we would have liked for the initial, you know, the initial product and had waited eight months for it. And so when it arrived, they were, you know, expecting, to just get toilet paper. And then they opened, you know, if you've opened one of our boxes, they're kind of a beautiful, colorful, fun moment. And I think that the combination of, of getting that customer experience, right. So they opened up this fun, bright, colorful box of, you know, this new toilet paper brand that is a world first that gives back that, you know, has a funny name combined with a thousand people doing that simultaneously. That was enough kind of groundswell to, you know, and Instagram just kind of happening at the same time, the share button on Facebook kind of being a thing for the first time, that was enough groundswell to kind of get around us to, to make a sell out in that, in those first five days. And the, the sitting on the toilet campaign just poured fire on it. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we probably could have done it without the, without the sitting on the toilet campaign, but it just added a, an extra layer of, I've got to, you know, the, when we think about we think of our job often as being creating opportunities for the customer to tell someone else about what we're doing. And so, you know, when you open a bright, colorful box, can we make that moment so fun that someone will want to snap a photo and send that photo to someone else? And the sitting on the toilet campaign is part of that because it just adds, you know, oh my God, check this out. I've just got this toilet paper from the guy who sat on the toilet for 50 hours on a live stream. (laughs) And so it just adds another touch point to that, you know, that multi-layered story. Um, and so that's that's just how we think about product. What would you have done differently in hindsight? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the, that campaign we um, it was a real wild card going into it. You know, yeah. we we thought, hey, this will probably get knocked over in twelve hours if we're really successful, or it will bomb and it will take seven days, and we'll have to get a doctor to come in and, and say, hey, you can't do this anymore. It's medically not safe. <laughs> but the the thing that we thought was going to happen was that you know it would die down overnight. And so I'd be able to, to get off and like sleep on the floor with kind of my arms around the cistern and make it look like I was still, you know, technically on the toilet, like gaffer tape my hand on there or something so that I was still on the toilet and then get back on the next day. But the campaign took off globally and we were, 
we were really popular in Brazil and Greece. So the live web feed got embedded onto the homepage of the largest Latin American newspaper in the world. And um, we don't know what happened in Greece, like no idea. But with Australia, Europe and Brazil, that gives you 24 hour coverage. And so I couldn't, I actually couldn't get off the toilet because the whole stunt would have, you know, wrapped up every time I, I did stand up, people would write in saying, Hey, what are you doing? You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> and so, um, how, did, yeah. how did you sleep? So I didn't, I, I went 46 hours. Um, so it got to about 4am, you know, I'd been awake for two days, 4am of the second night. And, um, if you, I'd never tried staying up that long, but basically you start hallucinating because your body kind of starts to shut down. And so, um, yeah, I feel really tired thinking about it now. It's not, <laughs> it's not, it doesn't sound like fun. You start hallucinating and you also get quite paranoid. Like you, you know, like you start getting a bit worried about stuff. And I was on Reddit at 4am trying to drum up interest in, you know, from the U S from anyone who was uh, uh, online at that point in time. And, you know, I did an AMA saying, Hey, I've been on a toilet on a live web feed for 46 hours. Ask me anything. <laughs> and, um, basically, um, the feed and that shit up. people started writing in saying, don't you know that when you stay awake for too long, you go into a state of permanent psychosis. <laughs> I was like, that's not good. And so I, you know, it started like Googling it and yeah, it was just like, all right, this isn't cool. I'm, I'm done. And so I, I pulled up my pants and I turned around and fell asleep on the back of the toilet. So I was still on the toilet. And then two hours later, someone came in and woke me up and said, the money's money started coming in again. You know, we've got two more hours to go. Like, let's, let's do this. And so at 8am we hit the, the 50, $50,000. So I got two hours of sleep in the whole thing. And then, and then passed out on the floor kind of in a sleeping bag. Um, well, what was that? <laughs> How long was the sleep recovery after that? Yeah, it was pretty brutal. Um, I felt like I had, you know, just a cracking hangover afterwards. I think I slept for eight hours and woke up just with, you know, like a, a migraine level headache and wow. was just cooked and my, my legs were totally screwed. Um, luckily, someone who'd been watching the campaign knew a, a deep vein thrombosis specialist. So they arranged a free appointment for me, which was very <laughs> generous. And um, yeah, my calves were just killing. So um, we were really worried that something was wrong. And I went into the the clinic and they said, what are you doing here? We've, we only see people who are over 40, you know, you're in your twenties, what's going on and explained what had happened. They said, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Whip your pants off. Let's have a look and, and gave me the all clear, which was, which was good. But um, I had quite bad calf pain for like three days afterwards. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. I can imagine for me, the sleep would have been the killer, but Hey, you got there in the end. Yeah. It was, uh, surprisingly, it was the pain, like the sleep after a while you can sort of, you know, it kind of becomes hilarious because you're so delirious, but, um, the pain, you know, once you eventually you just forget about it and then it, it becomes really bad because you're going to do some serious damage. So who gives a crap today? You've got, uh, toilet paper, dream cloths, paper towels, and tissues. Yep. Um, it's been an interesting year because you would have thought, you know, uh, diarrhea-based diseases would have sort of gone on the wayside as everything's about COVID and flus and colds and all that sort of stuff. But you did have 
probably one of the most amazing events of the year with the great toilet paper run of 2020. Yep. Um, I've seen the stories of people who bought like a thousand rolls of who gives a crap that yep. was on the news. I'm sure you guys have talked about it internally. Yeah. Um, what's, what's the year been like for you personally up until the announcement yesterday? Yeah. Um, I mean, I should, that thousand rolls, I should clarify that was someone who accidentally bought for, she thought she was buying 48 rolls, but actually put in 48 as the quantity and got 48 boxes of 48 rolls two weeks before the pandemic hit. And then was like, you know, the most kind of famous person in the world as a result of that. <laughs> um, so kind of hilarious accidental story rather than a, a hoarder. Um, two, but yeah. two, 2,304 rolls for anyone listening <laughs> yeah. at home. Yeah. And she, she wrote to us and we said, Oh, you know, funny mistake. Like we'll arrange a pickup. And, and she said, no, all good. We'll, we'll sell them as a school fundraiser. And, you know, we gave That's her right. kind of a refund for the, 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 the shipping charge that we would have saved by shipping in bulk. And um, I think she was going to tack like $5 on top of every box or whatever. And then, yeah, two weeks later, the world ran out of toilet paper and, and <laughs> they had 48 boxes of it, which was kind of amazing. That's so <laughs> that is so funny that will forever go down to me it's like the moment of yeah. the pandemic we saw um, that i think that the you know um it got covered i think we saw it in five different languages that article like it just went truly viral <laughs> really so so what's what's this year been like yeah it was um per, on a personal level we had a we had our second baby at jan 20 so i was actually wow. on um eight weeks of parental leave so i was supposed to be coming back late March. And then, um, yeah, you know, March, March one, we saw daily sales kind of up two X March two, they were up five X March three, 12 X March four looked like it was going to be a 40 times regular day of sales. Jesus. And we just went viral, you know, like our, our customers, if you looked at, we have a channel in our Slack called social mentions where anytime someone mentions us, it pulls in and that was like a continuous scroll. Like it was just going up and up and up because we were getting so many mentions from our customers saying, why is everyone freaking out about toilet paper? You should buy from these guys. They're awesome. And um, I think, yeah, at our peak, we were selling 28 rolls of toilet paper every second, which Whoa. would have made us, you know, the, the, the biggest seller of toilet paper in the country on that day. And, um, 28 rolls a second. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that in a supermarket, you know, like you it's impossible. scan it that fast. <laughs> it's not possible. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of, you know, kind of bonkers, but, um, we knew that we had to protect stock for our subscribers. So we marked our stores sold out to make sure that we had enough stock for our subscribers for the, you know, however long we would need to supply them and our business customers. And we turned on an email sign up so that people could find out when we were back in stock. We thought we'd get a few thousand signups on that waiting list. We had more than half a million people sign up for that waiting list, which was kind of insane. And so Jesus. our team at that point sort of, you know, we were all saying how, like, what are we going to do? Like the mailing list is too big even if we get stock, if we put it back on our website, it's going to sell out before we can even email the mailing list because our traffic is so high. Um, how are we going to, you know, like get through this? And I think our team, you know, to their credit said, we've got to get toilet paper to the most people possible. And in a way, this is the moment that we've been training for. Like we've spent the last six years as an online toilet paper company with a remote team. Like we, 2020 is, is our time to it shine. Is us. Yeah. And so everyone dug deep and, and did, 
you know, early mornings and late nights trying to figure out how to service this massive mailing list. And we basically got our big 48 roll boxes and, and split them into two 24 roll boxes. We launched a new SKU, a 24 box, a 24 roll SKU for one of our, our products. Uh, and that meant we could send out twice as many orders from our warehouses. And then we, you know, to increase our customer service capacity, we hired and trained 25 freelancers in a week and that tripled our customer wow. service volume. And then we went to our warehouses and our couriers and said, what's the absolute limit of the number of orders that we can ship every single day? And then sent just enough emails out to, you know, from that email list to basically invite people to an invite only version of our website. That was like a secret online toilet paper club that, you know, they could only check out if they had a, a, an email linked to, to the invitation list. And um, we drip fed, you know, drip sent emails to just enough people to, to push our warehouses and our carriers to their absolute limits every day for eight weeks. And so we um, worked through that list knowing that, you know, if we got this right, we could deliver an amazing experience and hopefully, you know, create a massive donation come end of financial year. And so I think our team described those few months as being, you know, the most exhausting, but the most exciting work they've ever done, you know, just highly engaged, like incredible fun problem to solve, but the world was melting down around us, you know, like everyone was, was struggling at home and then works kind of absolutely pumping because we're trying to solve this very hard problem and, and, you know, doing more orders every day than we've ever done before. And so it was, it was really challenging. And so we, we got to the end of financial year, made a, you know, a whopper donation. It was $5.85 million this year, um, up 700% on 12 months prior, which is, you know, kind of insane. Um, and then I think we kind of thought that was, you know, we'd kind of got to the end of it and we were like, you know, we've done it. Hurrah. And then unfortunately the numbers in Vic started going back up again, you know, borders closed for the first time and all of our team in Australia is in Melbourne. And so everyone was exhausted, needed a break, borders were shut. So it didn't make sense to, you know, everyone was canceling their annual leave because they couldn't, couldn't go to Queensland or wherever they'd planned to, to travel to. Um, and then, yeah, the five kilometer radius thing happened. And so, we were really a bit worried about our team, to be honest. We felt like, you know, we could see not only our team's productivity, but individually our exec team, no one was doing their best work. You know, everyone was wiped and on top of that, really wanting to take annual leave, but just not feeling like they could. They didn't want to let down their team members, but also there was nowhere to, to go. And so we ended up giving um, a company-wide extra week off with two weeks notice, which basically allowed everyone to switch off in, you know, one of two weeks over a two week period. And then the second week there was no company wide meeting. So everyone's meetings were canceled, which meant that no one felt like they were letting each other down and by not being there. And so that um, was for me, that was the shot in the arm that I really needed after like a wild, wild start to the year. Um, <laughs> Damn, and now we're coming nice. into, yeah, now we're coming into holiday season, which is the other wild part of the year for us. Believe so this not. is, this is a busy time of year for you guys, Christmas. Yeah. So we, every year we launch a holiday edition, which is our, um, our kind of end of year edition, which, ah. um, has some festive notes to it. So last year was the gift edition. Um, we've done a naughty and nice edition, you know, a lot of, a lot of different fun bits and pieces. Um, and so we're just gearing up to, to push that one out, uh, in the next, next week or so. So it seems like the next year is going to be very exciting for you guys. I think you would have picked up a lot of new customers. So 
it may have taken things to another level. I It was really interesting reading some of the interviews and you were talking about how your role as the leader is often changing, but particularly in the last year or so, you've gone from being less in the weeds. You know, you mentioned this term around chief doer to chief company builder, yep. which I'm sort of getting to uh, personally as a stage of the moment. You know, we, it's a small team, four or five team members that are, are on here. And, but now I'm really having to think more about what is the vision of the company and where are we going? Yep. I guess I'm, I'm intrigued. Like the first thing that came into my head was what do you wish you'd done sooner? Like what, who had the biggest impact at the start in terms of hiring other staff? Was it hiring staff that did things that you weren't good at or hiring staff in things that you were good at? It's probably both, to be honest. <laughs> I think the 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 guys, you know, the people that shift the needle are people who are just like really, you know, top talent and great, great thinkers, you know, particularly early stage, great thinkers across different aspects of the business. So they're, mm-hmm. you know, really good in their discipline, but they also understand what else is going on in the business and how decisions are being made in their discipline and elsewhere will affect, you know, what else is happening in other places. And so now, yeah, we have, we have sort of an exec team now that's made up of, of mostly those individuals that have just been really like fundamental in shifting how we have gone about building the business, but it's across every, every aspect. So, um, you know, some of them work on stuff that I really love and would love to spend more time on, but can't. And others work on stuff that is a blind spot for me and I'm just really bad at it. And so they've been amazing at, you know, getting us to a much, much better level than what I would have ever been able to by myself. Yeah. But yeah, you know, across the board, that team is full of people who are, um, who are just fundamentally better at their job than I would ever be. <laughs> so I guess one interesting thing for me is, um, and saying that I'm working on this week in particular at the moment is, you know, you set out this vision of what the company should be and what it's about. Um, but then you've got to also make sure it's occurring at a micro level. How, what systems or, or processes or things do you use? Like I've been reading, a, rereading OKRs yep. again. I just I finished. Go there. Yep. Yeah. I just finished Drive by um, Daniel Pink, which was very interesting. Oh, yeah, cool. Yep. Um, Love Dan Pink. Yep. Yeah. Great. That was great where else read. I was going to go. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm curious as to how you, how, did, how have you built that? Yeah. So, um, you, you pretty much answered it. So, so, <laughs> so what, what the way that we think about this is, you know, um, first of all, we think about culture and happiness. Um, okay. Happiness being highly linked to culture because when people are happy, they're more resilient, they're more productive, they're more helpful. So we, if we're building a great culture, we sort of proxy that as optimizing for happiness. And so we subscribe to Dan Pink's theory around happiness that, you know, happiness comes from, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Mm. So autonomy is setting clear goals and then getting out of people's way to allow them to achieve them. Yeah. Mastery being letting people work on a core skill set that they're passionate about developing and learning themselves and purpose being, you know, connection to the greater good. So purpose is part of our DNA and it's our, our job to make sure that our team members have metrics that allow them to see how they're contributing to the, you know, the overall purpose of the business. So that's what we do with purpose with mastery. That's, you know, like 
an annual check-in and then monthly check-in. Yeah. Are we, are you working on the stuff that, that is really right for you? And so that is a, that is a conversation about how are you going and where do you want to go and what's the, the right stuff for you? And so we do that on a monthly and then an annual basis. And then autonomy for us is, is about goal setting and OKRs. And so our kind of overarching goal is everyone in the world with access to a toilet by 2050. So we've got 30 years to get there. And then we come down to what does that mean in a five-year horizon from today to five years from now, where are we trying to get to in order to hit that 30-year goal? Mm. And then now that we know what five years looks like, what does that mean one year from now that we need to be doing as a company? And so we set goals at you know, our kind of leadership level and our exec team and our planning team as kind of a collaborative process. And then we allow the the function heads who are our planning team to work with their team members to turn that into an annual, this is what we're shooting for. And then a quarterly, this is what we're shooting for and who's responsible for what. And so okay. that there are OKRs that we then have annual and quarterly OKRs. And then that gives us autonomy because we're, we've set the goals and now we can support our team members to, um, to, to hit them in the best way that they, that they see possible and help course correct when, when required. Yeah. So that answers what I was thinking is, you know, you've got this purpose, which you says that, you know, what you said before about your major dream goal target ideal. And then the autonomy element is, is bringing those OKRs to make sure that purpose aligns with the autonomy component. It sort of yeah. sounds like. Exactly. So, so OKRs are a tool for us to, um, to align the business strategy and the, the metrics of the individuals to the overall purpose of the company. Mm. And the, you know, the stuff that you do around personal, cause that's, that's the trickiest part for me at the moment is working out personal mastery and development. You know, you mentioned before about these goals, maybe monthly, quarterly, annual, are they part of OKRs or are they a totally separate thing? Um, personal, yeah. I mean, part of the monthly personal check-in is how are you going against your goals? And mm-hmm. so our monthly check-ins, the format is, you know, we know happiness isn't a number, but if it had to be, what what would it be out of 10 at the moment? Yeah. <laughs> and then um, how much are you working? You know, give me a give me a guide here. Are you like over or under at the moment? And then what work are you most proud of? What work has there been the most room for improvement on? How can I support you? How are you tracking against your goals? And then what's your focus for the year ahead? So everyone has those questions in a shared Google doc and they get Mm. updated, you know, 24 hours out and then shared with the manager and the manager can look at them and then choose where they want to hone in um, as part of the, you know, the the hour long catch up that they have, we have every month. And so everyone in the business does that with their manager every month. And that allows us to really check in on how the individual's going. You know, if, if something's not right, we can, you know, try and see how we can support to, to make it right. Um, give feedback, but also make sure that we're on track for kind of the overall OKRs that we've set for the quarter. It's very useful, very useful for me because I've been trying to like, how do I pull this all together? Cause the damn pink stuff is really good, but I noticed there are some faults with, um, OKRs, particularly on some of the components, whether it's mastery, um, yeah, purpose, and it, it just think, shows you've got to have multiple things going on at once. Yeah, OKRs are they're an amazing tool, but they're also challenging to get right. You know, it's it's mm. a lot. The first time you do them, especially, it's a lot. So we've spent a lot of time as an organization trying to figure out how we how we do OKRs. 
you know, each quarter to make them work better. And we're probably in a good place now, but we've been doing it for three years and the first year sucked. <laughs> Did it? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that would make sense. It's a, it's a steep learning curve. Yeah, and I think we were lucky. We ha- we've got a great, um, a great people and culture team who take a real operational lens as well as, a, you know, all of the traditional kind of people and culture lenses, but, but a very, um, you know, they, they kind of help us really think through the OKR side of things in, in sort of collaboration with our strategy team. So it's a blend of people operations and strategy that is the lens that we use for those. I want to jump into some rapid fire questions to finish things yeah, yeah. off. Um, I got to ask what's sort of, uh, the morning and evening routine at the moment at the moment. Um, Oh, I think right now it's not good. I like wake up and look at my phone and <laughs> check emails and slack in bed for like half an hour, which sucks. Um, yeah. but the, the ideal morning is, is not looking at my phone going for a surf. And then I've sort of started doing intermittent fasting in a attempt to try and reset my kind of body clock once a day. Um, and so normally don't eat anything until sort of 10 a.m. So I, I kind of stop eating stuff at 6 p.m. and then start again at 10 a.m. the next day. And that okay. is trying to sort of give my body a, like a hard reset once a day, kind of like turning your laptop off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and you got and that so, eight hour window. Yeah. I think it ends up being um, 14. 14 oh, hours. Eight, eight hours of eating. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. And so that, that's that been really good for me because I'm someone that um, finds it easier to follow rules to, than to, you know, than to not have any kind of discipline or structure. Um, so setting some guidelines, I'm like, all right, cool. That's pretty easy to do. <laughs> and evening, what do you sort of do to decompress at night? Um, I think, yeah, at the moment, our kind of ritual is to watch an episode of something and then have like at least half an hour kind of before bed and then always do a kind of nighttime meditation. Um, and so that's trying to just clear my head before I go to sleep. So when I get really busy or stressed out, I dream about work and I sleep really badly. Um, and so I have to, you know, make sure there's enough time to kind of decompress and try and empty my brain out before I go to sleep. What have you been watching? Um, oh my God, we just finished watching the bureau, which is amazing. Bureau. Why does that ring a bell? It's a, it's a French kind of, um, sort of somewhat gritty kind of spy show, which, um, I think the best piece of television we've watched in probably five years. Really? Yeah, really good. Uh, um, that's interesting. On yeah. SBS. Yep. Uh, of course. SBS has got a lot of great um, shows. They've got the, uh, the cartel show that I've been told about recently, which is Zero Zero, I think. Oh, I haven't seen that. Yeah, there's um, lots of good stuff on there. It's very, very intense. Uh, zero Zero Zero, I think is what it's called. Yeah. But yeah, I think it was nice to watch something, you know, non-American, <laughs> um, less kind of sensational. So yeah, it was a, a really nice piece of television. And last question for you, what's sort of been your go-to item in the fridge during this entire lockdown? During lockdown, um, oh, um, it's, it's probably like Oatly. <laughs> <laughs> oat milk of course yeah um underrated i, I stopped drinking dairy because i i think i get um i get Watch like sinus headaches from yeah. yeah um and so that's been made a big difference um and then oatly is a brand 
love the way they've gone about building their company you know, very similar kind of philosophy to us, kind of amazing, amazing job doing market entry into the US, which is a really hard market to get right. Um, So I've been a happy customer of theirs for a few years. (laughs) Simon, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, We're at www.whogivesacrap.org. And then for me personally, just on LinkedIn or Twitter is probably the best spots. Awesome. We'll make sure we put all those links in for everybody. Um, and everything we've spoken about today, of course, will be linked as well. But um, Simon Griffiths, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's great. Thanks for listening in to this episode. If you like it, do leave us a written review on your podcast app as it helps us continue going on a weekly basis. And we do love reading those reviews as well. Uh, If you want the show notes, you can find that below or with our previous guest at neural.com slash podcast. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash podcast. To watch the full video, search Uncommon Show on YouTube and to keep up to date with behind the scenes and clips for the show, you can find us at Uncommon underscore show on Instagram. But until next time, guys, thank you so much for listening.